I have heard story after story. I've seen state law after state law passed. And yeah, we are in a state of chaos. It's been one year since the Supreme Court struck down Roe versus Wade, and Democrats say the impact has been dramatic. It's Wednesday, June 21st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, a conversation with Washington Senator Patty Murray about efforts to legislate a federal right to reproductive freedoms. Also ahead, the USDA gave a final green light to the sale of no-kill meat grown from animal cells in a production facility. Upside Foods and Good Meats can start selling chicken made without killing the bird. And a federal judge has permanently blocked the country's first law banning gender-affirming care for minors, signaling a victory for LGBTQ advocates. It's 401, now this news. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The international search for the submersible Titan is intensifying. Teams are focused on an area in the North Atlantic where they've picked up noises, but officials caution that it could be anything. By all estimates, the Titan's oxygen supply is expected to run out tomorrow. The Titan was on an expedition to see the wreckage of the Titanic when communication ceased Sunday. A massive emergency response is underway in central Paris. A powerful explosion erupted in a historic part of the French capital today. Authorities say it might have been caused by a gas leak, but they're still investigating. The Paris newspaper Le Mans is reporting at least 29 people were injured. And as the BBC's Hugh Schofield reports, two people are still unaccounted for since the explosion several hours ago. At around five o'clock in the afternoon, a huge explosion was heard on the Rue Saint-Jacques, which runs south from the Latin Quarter on Paris's left bank. A building next to the 17th century Val de Grasse church was consumed in flames, and much of it appears to have collapsed. According to witnesses on French media, there was a strong smell of gas just before the blast. The building housed an international design school and the headquarters of the Catholic education system. The BBC's Hugh Schofield reporting. At a gathering in London, the U.S. and other allies of Ukraine Ukraine are promising billions of dollars in aid to help the country recover and prepare to eventually join the European Union. We have the latest from NPR's Michelle Kellerman. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says as Russia continues to try to destroy Ukraine, the U.S. and its partners will be there to help rebuild. He's also reassuring representatives of more than 60 countries that Russia will ultimately have to pay. Let's be clear. Russia is causing Ukraine's destruction and Russia will eventually bear the cost of Ukraine's reconstruction. The World Bank has estimated that it will cost more than $400 billion to fix Ukraine's infrastructure and rebuild. That estimate is rising by the day as Russia continues to bombard Ukraine. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell warns that interest rates are likely to go higher this year as the central bank tries to control inflation. NPR Scott Horsley reports on Powell's testimony today before a House committee. Inflation has come down from a four-decade high last summer, but prices are still climbing about twice as fast as the central bank would like. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell told a House committee he and his colleagues are determined to get inflation back down to their target of 2 percent. Powell acknowledged that process still has a long way to go. Inflation has consistently surprised us and essentially all other forecasters by being more persistent than, than expected. While Fed policymakers opted to hold interest rates steady when they met last week, Powell says most members of the rate-setting committee think additional rate hikes will be necessary this year in order to get prices under control. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. 
You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. More on the search continues for that missing submersible vessel 900 miles east of Cape Cod. The sub is running out of air with five people on board. Crews have heard underwater noises in the search area but aren't sure where they're coming from. Captain Jamie Frederick with the Coast Guard Boston remains clear about the mission. This is a search and rescue mission, 100%. We are smack dab in the middle of search and rescue. Frederick says the search area is about twice the size of Connecticut and two and a half miles deep in some spots. We currently have five surface assets searching for the Titan. We expect 10 total surface assets to search in the next 24 to 48 hours. There are two ROVs actively searching and several more are en route will arrive by tomorrow morning. That's when the Titan is expected to run out of oxygen. The sub was on its way to visit the wreckage of the Titanic when it went missing on Sunday morning. Boston Children's Hospital is no longer ranked the nation's number one pediatric hospital. It had spent the last nine years in the number one spot, according to U.S. News and World Report. But new rankings released today give that honor to Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Boston Children's still ranks pretty high, though, coming in at number two on this year's list. Outgoing CDC director and former chief of infectious diseases at Massachusetts General Hospital, Rochelle Walensky, is explaining her reasons for stepping down from her post. She says the end of the COVID-19 public health emergency prompted her decision. Walensky says she was surprised by the fraught and intense public pressure she faced leading a federal agency. The threats in front of my house, um, the threats to my family or my personal life, that, that was or me personally, that was not ever what I expected this job would be. Walensky took over as CDC head at the start of the Biden administration. Her final day at the agency is June 30th. The Boston Marathon is now accepting applications from charities for next year's race. Race organizers say applications will favor charities promoting healthy living in greater Boston. In 2023, athletes running for in the Boston Marathon raised a record $40.3 million for charity. Sports, the Red Sox will be looking for their seventh win in a row tonight when they take on the Twins again out in Minnesota. In the forecast, partly cloudy tonight, some patchy fog overnight, the low around 56. Mostly cloudy tomorrow, the low 61. Mostly cloudy again on Friday. Chances, showers, and thunderstorms, the highs around 78. Right now, 66 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly on a rainy day on Capitol Hill. I'm standing here looking east because it's just a couple of hundred yards east of here that you will find the Supreme Court, which one year ago issued the opinion striking down Roe versus Wade. Well, since then, Democrats here in Congress have been trying to figure out ways to legislate a federal right to reproductive freedoms. They have not succeeded. Now, we have come today to meet the woman still leading that charge. She is Senator Patty Murray of Washington. She's a 30-year veteran of the Senate. She spent a lot of those years focused on reproductive rights. Nice to see you, Senator. Thanks for having us. Inside her Senate office, with the anniversary looming of the decision overturning a federal right to an abortion, we sat down with Patty Murray to talk through where she sees the fight going next. Senator Murray, welcome to All Things Considered. I'm so delighted to be on with you today. Thank you. 
as we were just getting set up, you, you looked at me and said, I can't believe it's been a year. Um, what do you think about when you think about the Dobbs decision a year ago? Uh, you know, it's incredible that it's been a year, but it feels like a really long year. I, I remember when the Dobbs decision came down, I was on a plane flying home to Seattle, got off, and I was just, I just felt so stunned um, and sad. And I kept thinking, this is going to create chaos. Couldn't quite define that yet, but could say that it was going to happen. And here we are a year later, and I have heard story after story. I've seen state law after state law passed. And yeah, we are in a state of chaos for women's health. Well, and I gather you were hoping for chaos on a certain level. I saw an interview you gave to The Post last year where you said, I hope this moment of the Supreme Court striking down Roe v. Wade will be a galvanizing moment, that there will be a national furor. Has there been? Absolutely, without a doubt. I mean, we saw it in the election. Every state that has had... But we saw in the election Republicans took the House. Right, but every state that had abortion on the ballot, abortion rights for women, it passed. Women came out to vote to make sure that they could protect their rights. Have we seen dozens of states pass really horrific laws that have inhibited women? Yes. Yeah. But I guess, I mean, just to push you on this, the Supreme Court struck down Roe. Republicans won the House. As you just nodded to, state after state has passed laws restricting abortions, mostly not the other way. Um, there's still all kinds of debate over the uh, abortion pill and mifepristone and where that will go, but increasing efforts to walk back access to that. And I'm sitting with you on Capitol Hill, and there aren't protests outside every day. I get that there can't be protests every Look, day, but I, when I you say you it's caused difference. a furor, I'm not yeah, sure I, I see it. I can tell you the difference pre-Dobbs decision, post-Dobbs. Pre-Dobbs decision, women in this country knew that they didn't have to tell anybody that they were pregnant or that they were ending their pregnancy or that they had a miscarriage or had any complications from it. It was a private decision. They had access to the care they needed. That changed dramatically and continues to change as state legislators take these horrific steps to preclude women from getting the access that they need. And now women are realizing, and men, that they can't be quiet about this. They actually need to tell people this is happening to them. And the number of people who have a friend, a family member, someone they work with, uh, someone they know in college that has been impacted by this, it is growing and the outrage is growing. So let's talk about what you would like to see Congress do. Um, last May, right after the draft opinion leaked, the Senate held a vote attempting to enshrine abortion rights. It failed. I guess I'm wondering, we're not able to get a vote through when Democrats controlled the Senate and the House and the White House. Today. So what gives you hope? Today. And I think what gives me hope is that this has now become an issue that people really understand. And they understand that they have to stand up and fight for it, that we need to change the laws, we need to protect women. Do you hear any of that from your colleagues across the aisle, though, like Republicans in the House? Well, what I have, well, I'm not going to speak for the House, <laughs> a radical few, but what I can tell you is a number of Republicans have gone from a year ago saying, we're going to pass a national ban to just being quiet about it in, in most cases. Now, there are absolutely members of the Republican Party who are standing up and continuing to try and make this an issue. But I will tell you, as we see more and more of the fallout, the impact to women in particular, 
treating women as the, if they are second-class citizens uh, in this country. You cannot determine your own health care. You can't even find your own health care. You can't even travel to another state to get your health care. The outrage that is being felt by women and their friends and their families is growing. Huh. Listening to you, you don't sound tired. I think a lot of people might sound tired after 30 years. It's been 30 years since you entered the Senate, and women arguably have had seen their rights narrow, not expand yeah. in that time. Oh, I, this is a battle of a lifetime. I was in college when Roe was decided. I had friends, one who was what we today would call be called date-raped, um, and she had no health care access, ended up having uh, an abortion by a doctor on the street and severely injured because he didn't have the right kind of care. I do not want to go back to those days. I don't want to go back to the days where women are put into institutions because they got pregnant. This is life. This is what happens. And uh, in this country, we have protected that ability for the last 30 years, and I will keep fighting every day till we get that back. I interviewed Gloria Steinem last spring, the activist and journalist, and she compared the fight for reproductive rights to a tree. Her argument was, if trees grew from the top down, it would be fine to wait on Congress to do something here. But <laughs> you're laughing. Trees grow from the bottom up, from the ground up. And that's the way this is going to have to work. It has to be about a fight by individuals in our communities. Absolutely. She is so right about that. I can be in the back room and fight. But the laws will be overturned. The courts will turn back to a place where we have our protections. Roe will be established in individual states across the country where people elect legislators on both sides of the aisle who are willing to say women's rights need to be protected, women should make their own health care decisions, legislators should not. Senator Patty Murray, Democrat of Washington, thank you. Thank you. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has, for the first time in history, given a green light to two U.S. companies to sell meat that is grown directly from animal cells without slaughtering the animal. Until recently, it was called lab-grown meat since scientists were developing it in labs. Now, though, the labs have been replaced by production facilities that can grow tens of thousands of pounds of meat a year. NPR's Allison Aubrey has visited these companies and tasted the meat and joins us now. Hey, Allison. Hi there. So, Allison, what exactly did the USDA approve today? Well, for thousands of years, eating meat has meant slaughtering animals. But the scientists behind the two companies that received USDA clearance today say that's no longer necessary. Instead, they produce meat by extracting cells from an animal's body. And then they feed the cells and literally grow meat in big stainless steel tanks. Their production facilities look like breweries almost. But instead of beer, they're brewing meat, so to speak. I do not know how I feel about that. But OK, <laughs> let's go on here. We have been hearing about so-called fake meat for a long time now. I mean, a lot of us have eaten our fair share of veggie burgers or impossible burgers over the years, but what makes this different? This is nothing like the Impossible Burger or a veggie burger, which are made from vegetable proteins, so soy, potato protein, and a bunch of other ingredients that are mixed together to taste like meat. What's approved for sale today actually 
is meat. Uh, when I visited Upside Foods, which is headquartered in Berkeley, they prepared their chicken, which is grown directly from chicken cells. It's more than 99% chicken cells. It was pan seared in a kind of lovely buttery wine sauce. I mean, Allison, you're kind of bearing the lead here. How did it taste? How was it? <laughs> You know, I think almost anything cooked in butter and wine probably tastes good, right? Oh, yeah. What did impress me is the texture. They've basically replicated the texture of chicken breast. Uh, I told the CEO of Upside Foods, Uma Valetti, hey, it tastes just like chicken. It is chicken. It's just chicken grown directly from animal cells in a different way, in a very clean, controlled environment. Now, Dr. Valetti is a cardiologist who became a vegetarian, but he loves the taste of meat, and he thinks this is a better way to produce meat, one that could be better for the environment. And as the son of a veterinarian, he likes the idea of sparing animals' lives. Okay, so where can people buy it or get a taste of it? Right now, don't expect to see it in grocery stores. To start out, both companies have kind of teamed up with famous chefs. Upside Foods is working with chef Dominique Crenn, a Michelin-starred chef in San Francisco. And Good Meat, the other company that got clearance today, has partnered with megastar Jose Andres, who will serve cultivated chicken at one of his restaurants. I mean, so why should people want this? What is wrong with the way that meat's produced today? It depends on who you ask. The traditional meat industry says the status quo is efficient, but meat production has a big environmental footprint. I talked to Bruce Friedrich, who heads the nonprofit Good Food Institute. He tracks investments in protein alternatives and says there are more than 150 companies working to bring cultivated meat and seafood to market. Some are working on beef. He says global demand for meat is expected to double by 2050. Cultivated meat gives consumers everything that they like about meat but it requires a fraction of the land, requires significantly less water. Now it remains to be seen whether cultivated meat production can lower greenhouse gas emissions from producing meat, but what is clear is that now that cultivated meat is approved for sale, it is no longer science fiction. People will get a chance to taste it. All right, that is NPR's Allison Aubrey. Thank you so much. Thank you, great to be here. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR, 66 degrees in Boston at 418. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, we'll have a conversation with U.S. Ambassador to China Nicholas Burns about the next steps in U.S.-China relations. That's ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet. Learn how to have impact at Zevin.com. On Wall Street today, stocks closed lower. The Dow was down three-tenths of a percent at 33,952. NASDAQ down almost one and a quarter percent at 13,502. And the S&P 500 down half a percent at 4,366. In local business news, a Boston-based immunology company has secured FDA approval for a new treatment for a severe autoimmune disease. Argenix's Hytrulo injection will treat adults with generalized myasthenia gravis, or GMG. The chronic disease causes debilitating and potentially life-threatening muscle weakness for about 65,000 Americans. This is WBUR.
Funding for WBUR's Business Report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovation to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. In the forecast, partly cloudy tonight, some patchy fog overnight. The lows will be around 56 degrees. Should be mostly cloudy tomorrow, low of 61. Mostly cloudy again on Friday with a chance of showers or thunderstorms. The highs will be around 78 degrees. Right now it's 67 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin since 1793. From Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline how businesses can attract, interview, and hire candidates. More at indeed.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. A federal judge in Arkansas has struck down the nation's first ever ban on gender-affirming health care for transgender minors. Yesterday, he ruled the state law unconstitutional, which could affect other states with similar laws on the books. Daniel Breen with member station KUAR in Little Rock is with us. Hey there, Daniel. Hello. Hi. So this case goes back to 2021. That is when lawmakers in Arkansas passed the nation's first ever ban on gender-affirming health care for minors. Just walk me briefly through how it's ended up in federal court. Sure. So the law is called the Save Adolescents from Experimentation or SAFE Act. It was part of a flurry of legislation we saw here in Arkansas and other states really restricting the conduct and speech relating to the LGBTQ community, specifically transgender people. The law here in Arkansas basically threatens physicians with legal penalties for prescribing gender-affirming care to trans kids under 18. And just to be specific about what that means, this is treatments uh, like puberty blockers and hormones to help kids feel more like the gender they identify with when that may be a different gender than the one they were assigned at birth? Yes, exactly. Lawmakers had argued that the law was necessary to protect kids from quote-unquote irreversible procedures like surgery, though I think it's important to note that gender-affirming surgeries really have never been performed on minors here in Arkansas. Okay, so tell me more about how these arguments played out in court. So Arkansas Attorney General Tim Griffin said it's, quote, widely known that there is no scientific evidence that any child will benefit from these procedures and that they risk permanent harm. When the state argued its case last December, it called a number of witnesses to make that argument. But when questioned, a number of them admitted that they hadn't really had any experience providing transgender teens with any type of gender affirming treatments. Judge Moody's ruling said that there is evidence showing that gender-affirming care for trans youth improves their mental health and the well-being of patients. He said testimony from well-credentialed experts and the doctors that the plaintiffs called showed that. And who are the plaintiffs, by the way? So the ACLU sued on behalf of four families of transgender teens and two physicians here, and they got a federal court to put the law on hold temporarily just days before it was set to go into effect. Now, that was in 2021, and the lawsuit against it has been moving through the courts ever since. 
But last December, there was an eight-day trial, and then yesterday, U.S. District Court Judge James Moody permanently blocked the law, although last night, Arkansas's attorney general said the state will appeal his ruling. Well, and the judge said the law is unconstitutional. What is his reasoning there? So Moody said the law violates the First, the Fifth, and the Fourteenth Amendments. He agreed with the ACLU's arguments that the First Amendment protects doctors' right to refer patients to other providers for gender-affirming care. The judge said the law also violates rights to due process and equal protection by taking away parents' rights to make decisions about their kids' health care and that it discriminates against minors based on their sex since the law wouldn't prohibit minors from accessing gender-affirming care so long as it aligns with their sex assigned at birth. And broaden this out for me briefly. At least 19 other states have similar laws banning gender-affirming care for trans minors. What might this federal court ruling mean for them? Well, it's not exactly clear how the ruling will affect other cases right now, but I think right now it's fair to say that this sets an important precedent for uh, in the case law surrounding issues like this. Most of those other state laws are also being challenged in court. Uh I think this ruling is especially important because this was the first law of its kind to be passed in the country and a first time a law like this has been permanently put on hold. Daniel Breen, News Director at KUAR in Little Rock. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Monarch butterflies have distinctive orange and black wings. Their wings also have small white spots, and it's the white spots that recently caught the attention of one group of scientists. As NPR's Nell Greenfield-Boyce reports, these researchers believe that the white spots could help monarchs fly during their long annual migrations. Monarch butterflies are world-class flyers. Andy Davis studies them at the University of Georgia, He says their annual migration covers thousands of miles. One of the things that makes it so captivating as a scientist is how something so small and so delicate seeming can make such a tremendous journey. He says each spring, monarchs leave their overwintering grounds in Mexico. Then they head north, laying eggs as they go. Each generation of butterflies moves the species steadily northward. In the spring, it's more of a progression of successive generations. The fall migration is different and more dramatic. The fall migration is that magical one where one single generation attempts to make that long distance, you know, 3,000 mile journey all the way to central Mexico. These monarchs travel for about two months. Flying all the way down there or they die trying. It's a grueling trip. And Davis and some colleagues wondered if it might be affected by the pattern of color on monarch's wings. They've analyzed hundreds of monarch wings from butterflies all up and down its range, and they noticed something about the monarchs that successfully completed the long-distance flight. Those monarchs that reached Mexico tended to have slightly less black on their wings and slightly more white on their wings. To see if white spots might really be somehow related to migration, they looked at closely related butterfly species, ones that don't migrate and ones that were only semi-migratory. And so we figured if the migration has selected for white spots in the monarchs, then we would see larger spots in the monarchs compared to everybody else. And that's exactly what we found. He and his colleagues described their findings in a science journal called PLOS One. 
They believe the pattern of black and white on the edge of a monarch's wing could potentially affect airflow because the dark and light patches would be hotter or cooler in the sun. Other butterfly researchers say it's a wild idea. Marcus Kronforst is an evolutionary biologist with the University of Chicago. He studied wing color for basically his whole career. It's never crossed my mind that it might influence how the butterflies fly, that it would influence their their sort of aerodynamic uh, efficiency. It is, it is a, as far as I can tell, it's a totally new idea. He says most research on wing color has studied how it can be used for camouflage or as a warning to birds that might be looking for a snack. The reason monarchs have those bright color patterns is to warn predators that the butterfly is toxic. He finds the idea of color affecting flight intriguing, but thinks there needs to be more evidence. That's also the view of Mary Salcedo, who studies insect wings at Cornell University. She'd be interested in seeing flight-related experiments done with wings that have different color patterns. I'd love to see aerodynamic tests on their lift and drag coefficients. That's the kind of work that Davis and his colleagues are focused on now. They're planning to use a mechanism that will flap real butterfly wings in a testing chamber that tracks the movement of air. Nell Greenfield-Boyce, NPR News. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. 67 degrees in Boston at 429. Coming up in about 20 minutes, back in 1943, a fight broke out among black and white U.S. soldiers in England, leaving one black soldier dead and 32 court-martialed. It shows how when GIs fought fascism in Europe, they brought Jim Crow with them. That's ahead here on WBUR. In the forecast, partly cloudy tonight with some patchy fog overnight. The lows will be around 56 degrees. It'll be mostly cloudy tomorrow, a low of 61. Mostly cloudy again Friday. Chance of showers and thunderstorms. The highs around 78. Right now, 67 in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU College of Fine Arts. Earn your graduate degree at a tight-knit arts community in a vibrant university. bu.edu slash cfa slash grad. The PGA Tour and Saudi-backed Live Golf announcing they will merge into one golf league. That major merger has roiled the sports world and the geopolitical one, too. Sports diplomacy isn't new. Countries use athletics to burnish their reputations all the time. But could the Saudi golf deal be better described as sports washing? That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. A new NPR PBS NewsHour Maris poll finds that nearly a year after the Supreme Court's decision overturning the right to an abortion, a majority say they're against the so-called Dobbs decision. As NPR's Domenico Montanaro tells us, that puts Republicans running for president in a tough position. 
Some 57% of the more than 1,300 respondents say they disagree with the Dobbs decision. That includes sizable majorities of Democrats and independents. Six in 10 Republicans, though, say they agree with the decision. That's meant that Republicans running for president are trying to appeal to that base, putting them at odds with the broader universe of voters who will decide the general election, including the two-thirds of suburban and independent women who say they disagree with the decision. And we know that this was a motivating issue helping Democrats in last year's midterm election. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington. In Poland, the head of the country's powerful right-wing ruling party has rejoined the government as the only deputy prime minister in the cabinet. Four other deputy prime ministers resigned today from their positions ahead of elections this fall. NPR's Rob Schmitz explains from Berlin. Yaroslav Kaczynski, the controversial leader of the ruling right-wing Law and Justice Party, is taking up a more prominent role ahead of what promises to be a closely fought election expected in the fall. His return to the government comes amid a struggling campaign by his party to secure a third term in office that would likely see it continue making policies that have set Poland at odds with the European Union. That's NPR's Rob Schmitz. Kaczynski is widely seen as Poland's de facto leader, although... His party is ahead in the polls. It's not clear it can maintain a majority against a rising opposition party, which has been energized after a massive anti-government protest earlier this month. On Wall Street, stocks finished lower today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The Massachusetts Air National Guardsman accused of leaking classified federal documents online is pleading not guilty to charges he's facing. 21-year-old Jack Teixeira of Dighton appeared in a Worcester federal court for an arraignment less than an hour ago. His lawyers asked to reconsider his bail determination, which was denied. His next court date is August 9th. He could face up to 60 years in prison if he is found guilty. Thousands of Cape Cod residents could be required to replace or upgrade their septic systems under new state regulations released today. That's unless local water districts come up with other plans to reduce water pollution. WBUR's Barbara Moran has more. Decades of nitrogen pollution from septic systems has led to algae overgrowth and murky water in many Cape Cod bays and estuaries. Andrew Gottlieb is with the Association to Preserve Cape Cod. He says the new regulations should help the Cape move away from traditional septic systems to large-scale solutions. These regulations are long overdue, much needed, and transformational for Cape Cod. In a statement, Governor Healy said her administration would, quote, ensure there is financial support as the new regulations are implemented. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. The state is preparing for more than 200,000 newly eligible residents to apply for driver's licenses next month. That's when a new law goes into effect allowing undocumented residents to apply for Massachusetts driver's licenses. Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll, herself a daughter of an immigrant, was at an event marking the change earlier today. I want to celebrate this milestone of people coming together across our commonwealth to take care of their neighbors, to help build stronger and smarter communities in a way that allows just some of the basic dignities that people expect to be able to go shopping, go to a doctor's appointment, go to school. The state has upped its RMV service center staff by 45 percent in anticipation of the influx of new applicants. It's also rolling out changes to its website that allow people to request interpreters for RMV appointments. It's 435.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Booksmith. Dr. Ibram X. Kendi and Joel Christian Gill discuss Stamped from the Beginning, a graphic history. On June 26th, brooklinebooksmith.com. Should be partly cloudy tonight with some patchy fog overnight. The lows will be around 56 degrees, mostly cloudy tomorrow, a low of 61. Mostly cloudy again Friday, chance of some showers or thunderstorms, the high is 78. Right now it's 67 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. And from Focus Features with Asteroid City, the new comedy from director Wes Anderson, starring Jason Schwartzman, Scarlett Johansson, and Tom Hanks, now playing in New York and Los Angeles, in theaters everywhere this Friday. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Sending Secretary of State Antony Blinken to China was supposed to help. This week's meetings between Blinken and China's foreign minister and with Chinese President Xi Jinping were supposed to lead to more high-level diplomacy and calm tensions between the world's two largest economic powers. I think it was a very important visit. We hadn't had an American Secretary of State, believe it or not, in China in five years. And this is a very complicated and often quite difficult relationship between the United States and China. That's U.S. Ambassador to China Nicholas Burns, who I spoke with last night. Right. And around the time you were talking to him, U.S. President Joe Biden was speaking at a campaign event where he likened some of President Xi's recent behavior to that of a, quote, dictator. A spokesperson for China's foreign ministry called the remarks utterly absurd and irresponsible and said they were, quote, an open political provocation. In a press briefing today, a U.S. State Department spokesperson said President Biden has been clear about the differences between democracies and autocracies and that it should come as no surprise that the U.S. and China have differences and disagreements. Well, we'd reached out to Ambassador Burns yesterday evening to understand where there might be room for cooperation amid those differences. And I asked him if diplomacy is about compromise, what compromise is going on right now between Beijing and Washington? Well, it's sometimes about compromise, but often diplomacy is also defending your side. We have a number of major disagreements with China and we're not compromising. For instance, on Taiwan, we believe that the government here in Beijing has been far too aggressive in trying to intimidate and coerce with their military actions in the Taiwan Strait. Second, we obviously do not want to see any kind of lethal military support by China to Russia for Russia's brutal illegal war in Ukraine. The third example of that, we can't compromise, cannot, on human rights. And during this visit, Secretary Blinken raised difficult human rights issues, forced labor in Xinjiang, the actions by the government of China that are repressive in Tibet, and of course, the end, really, of civil liberties and democratic freedoms in Hong Kong. I wouldn't say that the cooperative mechanisms that we have in place with China are necessarily compromises, but obviously it's in the self-interest of the U.S. to work with China on climate change. It's such a major challenge for both of us, and we're the two world's two largest carbon emitters. Another example of that would be global public health, We're trying to work together in the battle against infectious diseases. That's just how we look at this relationship. It's mainly competitive, but there are cooperative aspects. And I should say, Juana, what we feel very strongly about 
is that in a difficult, often contentious relationship, it needs to be peaceful. I want to turn to the topic of Taiwan, which you mentioned earlier. Secretary Blinken reiterated the U.S. position of one China, that the country does not support Taiwan's independence. Given statements by President Biden and visits from a number of U.S. politicians, the Chinese seem less convinced. What are you telling Washington about how to handle this? Well, I can't obviously reveal everything I'm saying to my own government, but uh, we have a very clear policy. It's the one China policy that the United States has had for a half century. And a major part of that policy is that we obviously want to see the very difficult cross-strait relationship between the People's Republic of China and the Taiwan authorities. We want that to be peaceful. And we saw after Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan last summer that China reacted far too aggressively in firing missiles over the island of Taiwan and simulating a blockade of the island. And we are telling the Chinese that they should commit to a peaceful resolution of this dispute. And so there's nothing new here for really a half century now. We've been consistent. I want to go back. You mentioned Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. If you're looking at this from Beijing's perspective, though, wasn't Pelosi's trip in and of itself a provocation? Well, we don't agree with that. I think that is the way that the Chinese leadership thought about it. That's what they said they thought about it. We very much disagreed. In all my meetings, and I had many meetings with the Chinese leadership before her visit, during her visit, and after, I defended Speaker Pelosi's right to travel to Taiwan. I also defended just last month Speaker Kevin McCarthy's right to meet with Tsai Ing-wen, the Taiwan leader in Los Angeles. You know, we can't allow the Chinese to tell us, to tell our members of Congress, our leaders, with whom they can meet and whom they should not meet. And the Chinese need to understand that. A few months ago, China broadened the scope of its anti-espionage law. Have you heard from American businesses who are finding it more difficult to do their business in China? I have. Uh, I've been traveling throughout the country the last couple of months. I've met the American business community, and there's a, a great concern here. And it's a very large trade relationship, $690 billion last year. China's our third largest trade partner. But American businesses are feeling besieged. There have been a series of punitive actions taken by the government of China, and we believe that they're not warranted against several prominent American companies. And you mentioned the Espionage Act. This is a, a amendment to China's espionage law, which will go into effect on July 1. And it has such a broad definition of what espionage is that it basically includes activities that in any other country of the world would be perfectly legal. We fundamentally object to this. I have taken this to two ministers of the, of the government here in Beijing and said, please reconsider this because what, what's going to happen, you're going to drive investment away. And I must say, many other countries have noted their concerns with this as well. You mentioned the fact that you've been doing a good deal of traveling throughout China. I am curious to learn from you, what are you hearing from Chinese people in those travels? Are, are they angry at you as a representative of the U.S.? Do they express wanting better relations with the U.S.? Tell us what you've heard. The Chinese people have been very civil to me and very welcoming as I travel around the country. You know, if you get into a conversation about Taiwan, most Chinese here are, are nationalistic, and an average Chinese citizen might defend their government on that. But they do, I think, understand that the relationship with the United States is critical for them, as ours is with China, that they want a peaceful future. I do worry, however, 
that on a people-to-people basis, we've had very little interaction because of the Chinese policy of zero COVID, the lockdowns during the three years of the COVID crisis. So for instance, let me give you a data point. There are about 300,000 Chinese students in American universities Mm -hmm. and only 350, 350 American students in all of China. That worries me. I want to jump in here because the numbers that you've talked about about American students, they're quite stark. Do you expect more American students to return to China soon? Well, we hope so. It, this, is a, this is a question. Will the government here in China open up visas to American students? That was a problem over the last three years. Second, will some of the American universities who had junior year programs here or summer Chinese language institutes, will they reopen? And again, you know, I'll just give you an example. Wanna, in our diplomatic mission here in China, we have an enormous number of people who came here as American teenagers or college students. They learn the language. They're back on their second or third tour here in China. That is irreplaceable expertise to understand China, and we need that for the next generation. So while we compete with the government of China, we want the two peoples, obviously, to be interacting as much as possible. That's a major priority for us. Nicholas Burns is the United States ambassador to China. Thank you so much. Wanna thank you so much. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Hundreds of scientists in India have expressed concern over the removal of topics like the theory of evolution and the periodic table from 10th grade textbooks. The latest omission is one in a series of changes made this year, including in history textbooks. Critics say that it's part of the ruling BJP government's agenda to replace Western scientific concepts with traditional Hindu theories. From Delhi, Shalu Yadav reports. For thousands of years since we've been hearing stories from our grandparents, no one has ever said that they saw someone going to a forest and seeing a monkey that turned into a man. Darwin's theory is scientifically wrong. Those were the words of India's ruling BJP party MP Satyapal Singh in 2017, rubbishing Darwin's theory of evolution and advocating its removal from school curriculum. Six years on, his wish has come true. A certain circuit went on to say that there is a banning evolution in India. English naturalist Charles Darwin's theory that states that humans shared a common ancestor with apes has been removed from grade 10 science textbook. The government justified the move by saying that the theory is still a part of grade 12 syllabus. But the reality is that only a small fraction of students choose the science stream beyond grade 10. An even smaller fraction of those choose biology. And so the exclusion of this theory from grade 10 syllabus means that millions of students will never get to read about it. The chapter on periodic table has also been scrapped. We are trying to compete with China. We are trying to compete with the US. But how it is possible without scientific temper, without scientific worldview? Amitabh Pandey is one of the hundreds of scientists who wrote an open letter protesting the government's decision. He says depriving students of basic scientific knowledge is dangerous. I'm afraid. This is taking India backward. Last decade, we have lost almost two generations. But world is going ahead. Nobody will wait for us. Nobody will care for us. The belief that ancient Hindu practices are superior to modern science is not new in India. It existed way before the Hindu nationalist BJP government came to power in 2014. But this viewpoint, which used to be on the fringe, is now taking the center stage. 
This is the voice of India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi, claiming that the world's first plastic surgery was performed in India thousands of years ago on a Hindu god Ganesha, who sports an elephant trunk on his face. He also claimed that genetic science existed in ancient India. Taking a cue from the Prime Minister, many ministers and government officials have made similar unscientific claims. That whole business of ancient Indians being the first scientists is part of that whole agenda of making India great again. You know, it's Trumpian in that sense. <laughs> you know, we'll make India great again by making it Hindu again. That sort of thing is going on. Scientist and author Mirananda says that pseudoscience is systematically being formalized in the Indian educational setup. Since the BJP has come to power, major research centers have been taken over by the foot soldiers of the Hindu right. There, the project is to reinterpret Indian history as a golden age in which all scientific advances took place, which preempted the discoveries of, let's say, Isaac Newton, Charles Darwin, the very pillars of modern science. The Indian constitution says that it's a fundamental duty of every citizen to develop scientific temper and the spirit of inquiry and reform. But that spirit, critics say, is now shrouded in ancient and sometimes archaic belief systems. For NPR News, I'm Shalu Yadav in Delhi. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 67 degrees in Boston at 448. Coming up in a few minutes on 90.9 WBUR, how during World War II, GIs fought fascism and brought Jim Crow with them. That's ahead here on WBUR. Tap and listen to WBUR anywhere this summer takes you. Listen live and catch up on anything you missed. Download or update the WBUR app now. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Ranked by U.S. News & World Report as best in New England for primary care education. Learn more at umassmed.edu. In sports, the Red Sox will be looking for their seventh win in a row tonight when they take on the Twins out in Minnesota. Garrett Whitlock gets the start for the Sox. Sonny Gray will be on the mound for the Twins. In the forecast, partly cloudy tonight, some patchy fog overnight, a low around 56 degrees. Mostly cloudy tomorrow, the low around 61. Right now, 67 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. And A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public, museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston, astreetframes.com. Soul singer Paul Janeway dreamed of becoming a preacher. Instead, he's the front man of St. Paul and the Broken Bones. Anytime, you know, you make music in general or any sort of art form, sometimes you kind of, it's what moves you. The band's new album includes songs for his daughter, Angels in Science Fiction, on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. This weekend will mark 80 years since a World War II battle involving U.S. military members. It wasn't against the Nazis. It was between black and white U.S. soldiers stationed in England. They were there to fight fascism, but the white service members brought Jim Crow with them. One black soldier was killed, while others were convicted of a mutiny and have never been exonerated. NPR's Lauren Freyer has the story. 
One day back in the early 80s, Clinton Smith, the black maintenance worker in northern England, spotted holes in the wooden facade of a bank near his work. And I flippantly said to my colleagues, you've got big termites. And they looked at me with complete dismay and said, no, they're not termite holes, lad, the bullet holes. From what? He said, oh, from the war. From a chapter of World War II that was virtually unknown outside this one tiny village. Smith, shocked by the story his colleagues then told him, vowed to change that. But first, he had to go down a rabbit hole of troubling U.S. history. Ship after ship from the New World brings to Britain fresh thousands of American soldiers. In the 1940s, it was a segregated U.S. Army that deployed to fight Hitler. If a black sergeant volunteered for the front line... You had to give up your rank and take a pay cut because the army did not, for example, want a black sergeant commanding a white private. Gregory Cook is a black historian and educator who made a film called Chocolate Soldiers, about black soldiers who came from the American South, where there were lynchings, and deployed to England, where there were not. White Brits treated black Americans as Americans, as allies, as equals, and as human beings. That was the case, at least, in a little village called Bamber Bridge. It's only about, I don't know, about five, 6,000 people live here. You know, nothing happens. It's just a small town, like in Lancashire. But something big happened here on the night of June 24th, 1943. Danny Lyons is a local welder who's recorded oral histories of his elderly neighbors who remember it. Here's some of his tape of Eunice Byers, who is now 106 years old. Our bedroom was over the shop, which was on Station Road. And is still talking about how she witnessed a gun battle outside her window that night. It all began at a 17th century thatched roof pub called Ye Old Hob Inn, where black soldiers used to drink with the locals. White American military police were particularly sensitive to them fraternizing with local white women, says historian Alan Rice. One African-American comes into the pub late night. Two military police officers notice this soldier not in his uniform. They try to make an arrest and all hell breaks loose. Black soldiers and white villagers both rally to the soldier's defense. He wasn't doing anything wrong. They all yell. And then someone throws a beer bottle at the white officers. And the court-martial transcripts spend more time on the amount of beer covering the American military policemen than they do with the subsequent deaths and injuries. And I think that says a lot. Outnumbered, the white military police retreat from this pub and then come back down Station Street with a machine gun mounted on their jeep. Black soldiers return to their barracks around the corner and then decide to raid the local armory and confront the white officers again in the street. Gunfire ricochets down the main drag of Bamber Bridge, 400 shots altogether. And when the smoke clears, a black soldier, Private William Crossland, lay dead in the street. From what I've worked out, somewhere between Eunice's shop and this house is where Crossland died. Clinton Smith, the maintenance worker who found those bullet holes in the bank, he now heads a local black history group. And he's spent the past 40 years doggedly investigating this battle. We've just come round a, an alleyway behind the old military barracks 
and so I th see this is one of the original existing walls and we believe these impacts Maybe from that. gunfire so we're now looking at trying to engage a ballistics expert. U.S. military said Crossland died in crossfire. Witnesses said he was shot in the back. He's buried in an American military cemetery in southern England with no cause of death. More than 30 of his black comrades were court-martialed. It went down in history as a mutiny. Some later had their sentences commuted so the military could keep them deployed. But they have never been exonerated. The person who first told me about Bamber Bridge is actually a U.S. diplomat. This story gets told whether we're a part of it or not. Let's be a part of it. You know, we've, we're a strong enough democracy to tell the entire story. Aaron Snipe is the U.S. State Department spokesman in London, and he's black. My grandfather worked on a U.S. military base, and he used to tell us stories about how the German prisoners of war were treated better than many of the African-Americans. So this is part of our history. There's an opportunity to make it right. He notes that the U.S. military has come a long way since segregation. It's led by many black generals. The U.S. defense secretary is black. So is President Biden's nominee to be the next Joint Chiefs of Staff. As for survivors of the Battle of Bamber Bridge, historian Gregory Cook has managed to find just one, an elderly Black veteran living in Colorado. And he refused to talk to me about it. Our conversation lasted like no more than two minutes. If he was court-martialed, it's not something that he would probably come back and voluntarily talk about. I got in touch with him maybe 60 years later, and it probably was like, you know, reopening a wound for him. He is a member of what America calls its greatest generation. And he and his comrades actually fought two battles, one against the Nazis and another against segregation here in Bamber Bridge. It was a precursor to the kind of battles that would play out in the streets of America for decades to come. Their descendants may not know it, but their names, says historian Alan Rice, are still known to villagers here. Private Nunn, Private Ogletree, Private Wise and, of course, William Crossland. There's an awful lot of um, potential families out there, and they've got a lot to be proud of. Their ancestors stood up against the racism of a segregated army and also made a great impression on local people here who were very proud to have them in their town. Last year, the residents of Bamber Bridge installed a plaque across from that 17th century pub in the middle of the village green. It reads in part, On the 24th of June, 1943, a quiet drink in a local pub turned into a confrontation and a tragedy. Locals have invited U.S. officials to be part of a commemoration this weekend for the 80th anniversary. A first step, they hope, toward exonerating the men who fought here. Lauren Freyer, NPR News in Bamber Bridge, Lancashire, England. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Organic Valley, 
a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. From BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy, clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. Thanks for joining us this afternoon, 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Ahead on All Things Considered, a new report claims Justice Samuel Alito did not disclose a luxury trip he took with billionaire Paul Singer, nor did he recuse himself from cases involving him. That's ahead here on WBUR. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Seeking an abortion and then being unable to get one can turn them down a path toward really severe financial hardship. Research shows that not having access to abortion can greatly impact women's lives. It's Wednesday, June 21st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, how Mississippi's recent abortion ban has affected one family. Also, Justice Samuel Alito did not disclose a luxury trip he took with billionaire Paul Singer, nor did he recuse himself from cases the businessman later had in front of the Supreme Court, a report alleges. Nina Totenberg will have more on that story. And the Federal Reserve opted not to raise interest rates last week, but today Fed Chairman Jerome Powell told lawmakers that more rate hikes are likely this year as the central bank tries to get prices under control. It's 5.01, now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Rescuers searching for a tiny missing submersible that vanished Sunday en route to the wreckage of the Titanic appear for the moment to be focusing on an area where a Canadian plane detected underwater banging noises. Captain Jamie Frederick of the 1st Coast Guard District is a response coordinator. He says while they've detected the sounds, they know little else at this point. I think you need to be careful. Um we, we, we need to have hope, right? But but I don't. I can't tell you what the noises are. But what I can tell you is, and I think this is the most important point, we're searching where the noises are, and that's all we can do at this point. It's clear that for the five people aboard this submersible, Titan time is running out with only a limited supply of air on board. Search and rescue vessels continue to converge on the area of the North Atlantic where the vessel went missing. Attorney General Merrick Garland is rejecting claims the president's son, Hunter Biden, got a special deal from the Justice Department. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports Republicans in Congress have criticized the plea agreement as a sweetheart deal. 
The GOP chairman of the House Judiciary Committee says a misdemeanor plea deal for Hunter Biden represents a double standard of justice. But Attorney General Merrick Garland batted back that complaint and remarks at a news conference in Stockholm. Garland says from the moment he rejoined the Justice Department, he left the case in the hands of a U.S. attorney that former President Donald Trump appointed. Garland says that U.S. attorney, David Weiss of Delaware, had full authority to decide the matter as he saw fit. The plea deal could spare Hunter Biden any jail time if it's approved by a federal judge. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. Heads of state, various financial leaders and activists are converging in Paris as part of a summit aimed at retooling the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank to better deal with climate change. The banks have been criticized for not factoring climate change issues into their lending decisions and also for continuing to be dominated by wealthier countries like the U.S. Stocks fell on Wall Street for a third day in a row after Fed Chair Jerome Powell testified before Congress. As NPR's David Gurr reports, Powell said Fed policymakers expect to raise interest rates again before year's end. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell reiterated what's in the latest summary of economic projections the Fed released after its most recent meeting, when it opted not to raise interest rates after 10 consecutive hikes. Many tech stocks ended the day down. Shares of Amazon were off three-quarters of percent after the Federal Trade Commission filed a lawsuit against the online retailer. The FTC alleges Amazon, quote, knowingly duped millions of consumers into unknowingly enrolling in its Amazon Prime service. NVIDIA and Alphabet, Google's parent company, also lost ground. So did Tesla, which closed almost 5.5% lower. David Gura, NPR News, New York. The Dow dropped 102 points. The Nasdaq fell 165 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The governor has filed an interim budget designed to keep the state running through the end of July. The new fiscal year begins on July 1st. Governor Mara Healey says she's filing an interim budget now in case the fiscal year 2024 budget is not ready. I think it was the prudent thing to do. I know that talks are continuing and we're hopeful that we'll, we'll see a budget uh, soon, but you know that's still working through a process. A House and Senate conference committee has been trying to work out differences in their respective budgets since early June. The governor is also proposing new updates to the state's physical education curriculum. The current framework was last updated in 1999. The proposed changes include curriculum on mental health, substance misuse, and gender and sexual orientation. Healy says the changes will empower students to build healthy lives. The proposal still needs approval from the state's Board of Elementary and Secondary Education. Unionized workers at Encore Boston Harbor are voting today on whether to authorize a strike against the operator of the Everett Casino. If the plan is approved, union representatives will set a deadline for a strike and give the bargaining committee the authority to call one. Union members say their salary and benefits are lower than other venues in Boston and other wind-run resorts in Las Vegas. Encore Boston Harbor says they are bargaining in good faith and are disappointed the union is moving ahead with its strike vote. Musicians and hikers kicked off a series of unique walking tours today. The day hikes are dubbed the Massachusetts Walking Tour. After each hike, musicians will play a concert. Mark Mandeville is co-founder of the event. He says it's a great way to raise awareness about the importance of green spaces. You can have board meetings and you can have conferences and things like that, but sometimes the best way to reach the public and the community is just by inviting them out on a hike. Sometimes I like to put it Sometimes people listen to hippies a little bit easier than than the conferences or the town meetings or things like that. The hikes start in different towns south of Boston today through Saturday.
In sports, the Red Sox will be looking for their seventh win in a row tonight when they take on the Twins out in Minnesota. In the forecast, partly cloudy tonight with some patchy fog overnight. The low's around 56 degrees, mostly cloudy tomorrow, the low around 61. Right now, 66 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. About a year ago, the U.S. Supreme Court issued the opinion striking down Roe v. Wade, returning the country to a patchwork of access to abortion care. Shortly after that Dobbs decision, a woman in Mississippi found out she was pregnant and was left without a choice of what to do next. We'll hear her story in a minute. But let's turn now to a story about ethics in the Supreme Court. It involves a conservative of justice, but not Justice Clarence Thomas. Last night, ProPublica published an extensive story about a high-end, all-expense-paid fishing trip to Alaska, including private jet travel, that was not disclosed by Justice Samuel Alito. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg joins us now. Hi there. Hi there. So, Nina, once again, ProPublica broke the story, and it's backed up by a good deal of documentation. What can you tell us about it? Well, according to the ProPublica report, in 2008, Alito went on this trip to Alaska with hedge fund billionaire Paul Singer, who's a big Republican donor and has repeatedly had cases before the Supreme Court. The justice traveled to the remote Alaska site on Singer's private jet, along with Leonard Leo, a longtime leader of the Conservative Federalist Society, who helped organize the trip, and the salmon fishing lodge that they all stayed at was owned at the time by another big Republican donor, Robin Arkley II, who footed the bill for Alito's lodging. Now, fishing is not the major occupation of any of these folks. Singer has earned a reputation as an aggressive, litigious hedge fund owner who, according to ProPublica, has had cases appealed to the Supreme Court 10 times, with one of them decided in Singer's favor in 2014 by a 7-to-1 vote. And I take it that Alito did not recuse himself in these cases, and he did not report the travel on his financial disclosure form, but he did have something of a prebuttal in the Wall Street Journal. Is that right? That's Correct. He didn't recuse. He didn't disclose. But he did respond to ProPublica. And but he did. And he didn't respond to ProPublica's questions. But he has not been silent, Juana. In a column published uh, last night online uh, on the conservative editorial page of the Wall Street Journal, he issued what amounts to a prebuttal, saying several things. First, that he had no obligation to recuse himself from any of these cases involving Singer's hedge fund because he only knew Singer casually, had never discussed anything about legal issues with him, and didn't even realize that Singer was connected to any Supreme Court case, as his name is nowhere mentioned in the briefs. Is that true that Singer's name is not on the papers in this case? That's true. But his name was widely linked to the case in the popular press, as he is the founder, president, and co-CEO of the hedge fund that is the one of the parties in this case. Okay. So should Alito have recused himself under the Code of Judicial Ethics? The code says judges should recuse when there is the appearance of impropriety, meaning an unbiased and reasonable person who's aware of all the relevant facts would doubt that the justice 
could fairly discharge his or her duties. And Alito says that no such reasonable person would think that he should have recused. Others, I should say, including some ethics professors, don't see it that way. And Nina, what types of laws or ethics rules or justices held to you when it comes to reporting trips like this? I talked to University of Virginia professor Amanda Frost, who specializes in legal ethics, and she said that the ethics law then and still is very clear about the disclosure of free transportation like this. It had to be disclosed as a gift, and it wasn't. The statute itself is clear, and the justices can be very harsh on litigants who fail to follow statutory language. So I think they should hold themselves to that same standard. The only exemptions to the statute back in 2008, she said, were food and lodging, but not travel. And even the food and lodging exemption caused enough raised eyebrows the way it was interpreted by some judges that the Judicial Conference of the United States clarified the rule this year to explicitly say personal hospitality does not include hospitality extended at a commercial property, such as a resort. Mm -hmm. It's only hospitality at the personal residence of an individual or his or her family property, in short, no business property. Justice Alito in his column says he understands this guidance to be new, and he intends to follow it, but even if you concede that the new guidance is more specific than before, the old rule was crystal clear about disclosing private jet travel, and the Supreme Court has long agreed that its members are obligated to follow the financial disclosure laws. Nina, we've got just a couple seconds left. Why do some of the justices seem to have such difficulty following these rules? I put that question to Professor Frost. They are used to standing above the law and not being scrutinized for their actions, and I think for that reason they became sloppy. I think the second problem is that they just weren't being conscious enough of the fact that these sorts of gifts are being given to them based on their position and in order to claim influence over them, even if it wasn't true. That was NPR's legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg's reporting. Thanks. Thank you. Lashana Halbert already knew just how much it takes to raise a child when she found out about her second pregnancy, a pregnancy that she was not ready for, either emotionally or financially. When I actually found out that I was pregnant, I tried to set up an appointment at the abortion clinic. The only clinic that provided abortions in Mississippi at the time. But she never heard back because that very facility, Jackson Women's Health Organization, was at the center of the Supreme Court case that overturned Roe v. Wade just a month before Lashana found out that she was pregnant. I was stuck like, dang, what, what do I do now? I can't do anything now. Lashana carried her pregnancy to term. She had her second son, Kingsley, back in January, making her one of the first people to give birth after being unable to end a pregnancy in the wake of Roe being overturned. Reporter Bryce Covert spent months talking to Lashana about that experience, and she joins us now. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So, It feels like Lashana's story is emblematic of what so many pregnant people across the country have faced over the past year, right? Like, can you just tell us a little bit about what her circumstances were when she found out about her second pregnancy? So, as you said, she was already a mother. She had a four-year-old named Royalty. 
And she and her partner, Kendall, were doing okay. She works at a school district doing IT work. She makes $8.50 an hour, which for Mississippi is pretty standard, but it's not a lot. He is a welder, and so he makes a little bit more. Um, They live in market rate housing, but it's pretty expensive. It's almost $900 a month. They get a little money in food stamps. They get a voucher to cover royalties after school care. But You know, they were piecing it together and making it work. But certainly when she found out that she was pregnant, there was not enough financial stability to welcome a child into their home. They were not ready. There were other things they wanted to have in place before that happened. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that because even though Lashana did eventually decide to have a second child, she had certain dreams that she wanted to fulfill before all of that. What did she tell you about those plans and dreams? Yeah, of course. Lashana had lots of things in place. You know, she had a job, she has family support, but she knew that she wanted a lot more financial stability. She knew she wanted a lot of things in her life to be different before she had a second child. I wanted to have a steady paying job where I can actually afford a house and I have to rent a house. I could have bought a house. I wanted to have a new car. I wanted to have my son in a better school. I just wanted everything to be better than what it is now. She also had just started looking into going to cosmetology school. She's been doing hair and makeup on the side for a while and had realized that's a passion of hers Then she really wanted to turn into her full-time career. Um, But just as she was starting to call around to schools, that's when she found out she was pregnant. Hmm. Well, I understand that Lashana found herself in a position where she was suddenly on the brink of poverty because she went ahead and had the second child. How common is that among people who seek abortions but can't get abortions to find themselves in such dire financial straits afterwards? It's unfortunately extremely common. Um, We have past research from the landmark turnaway study where a researcher followed women who both were able to get an abortion or were just over the limit for how far along they were and were turned away. And what she found is that the women who were turned away were nearly four times as likely to be living in poverty. They were more likely to drop out of school. Five years later, they were more likely to be in debt or to be evicted. Their children more, we're more likely to live in poverty. So it's very clear from that research that seeking an abortion and then being unable to get one can really turn them down a path toward really severe financial hardship. Mm-hmm. Well, since the Dobbs ruling came down almost a year ago, has the state of Mississippi or any other state with abortion bans now in place, have they provided any support services that can help alleviate any challenges that these abortion bans are causing people? There has been some movement, but not a lot. Uh, Mississippi did extend postpartum Medicaid to cover up to a year before parents who just gave birth were kicked off after a couple of months. And that happened in Wyoming as well. Uh, But in Mississippi, there were uh, 60 bills that were considered to provide more support to either pregnant people or new parents. Most of them died without consideration or without moving forward. Mm. Similar things have happened in other states, although there has been some movement in Florida, for example, to expand children's health insurance and in North Carolina to offer state employees paid family leave. The action that has been considered and moved forward most commonly in these states is tax credits for crisis pregnancy centers, which offer typically A lot of misleading information are run by religious organizations. Mississippi and a couple other states have expanded those tax credits, and and that's gotten the most momentum. Well, I wanted to ask, uh, because Lashana's baby Kingsley is six months old now, 
Have things improved for them since you began reporting the story? Is Lashana any closer to reaching the kind of stability that she was hoping for? They are basically in a state of stasis, I would say. You know, they're housed, they're they're getting by, but it's definitely a struggle and it's going to be more of a struggle as Kingsley gets older. She's starting to have to buy bigger clothes. He's now in childcare, so the expenses are growing and their incomes are not, and they're just really trying to make it work. You're listening to All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 66 degrees in Boston at 518. Coming up in about 25 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, the latest on that missing submersible vessel in the Atlantic Ocean. Time is running out for the five people inside. That's ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. On Wall Street today, stocks closed lower. The Dow was down three-tenths of a percent, closing at 33,952. NASDAQ down almost one and a quarter percent at 13,502. And the S&P 500 down half a percent at 43.66. In local business news, Mass Ioneer is getting a new president. Carol Ann Williams will assume the new role on July 1st. She's already been serving as interim president of the hospital since December. Williams joined Mass Ioneer back in 2011 as the president of finance and chief financial officer. She also previously worked for Mass General Brigham. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. And BU School of Social Work, top-ranked part-time MSW programs in Bedford, Fall River, Worcester, and Cape Cod. bu.edu slash ssw. In the forecast, partly cloudy tonight, some patchy fog overnight. The low's around 56 degrees. Partly cloudy tomorrow, the lows will be around 61 degrees. Right now it's 66 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive nature.org slash solutions. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The Federal Reserve opted not to raise interest rates last week. That does not mean the fight against inflation is over. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell told lawmakers today more rate hikes are likely this year as the central bank tries to get prices under control. Powell was also asked about recent turmoil in the banking system and about his fondness for jam band rock. NPR's Scott Horsley was listening, and Scott, I guess we should start with the serious stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Which was, as we noted, that when the Fed met last week, they voted unanimously uh, to hold interest rates steady. Sounds like that might be temporary. What's going on? 
Yeah, the Fed has raised rates really aggressively over the last 15 months, uh, partly because at first it was playing catch-up with what was runaway inflation. Now it's close to caught up. So Powell told lawmakers the Fed can afford to move more slowly. Much as you might do if you were to be driving you'd 75 miles an hour on the highway, then 50 miles an hour on a local highway, and then as you get closer to your destination, as you try to find that destination, you slow down even further. But Powell made clear he does not think we're at the destination yet. Uh, In fact, 16 out of 18 members of the Fed's rate-setting committee said last week they think interest rates will have to go higher. Most think we'll have at least two more quarter-point rate hikes before the end of the year. Uh, The the problem is that rate hikes have contributed to some of the recent stresses in the banking system. What did Powell have to say about that? Yeah, Powell says the overall banking system remains sound despite several high-profile bank failures. He did say the Fed is keeping a close eye on the commercial real estate market, which is under pressure as fewer people are going into office buildings to work, for example. Powell says that could be challenging for some smaller banks that have a lot of loans concentrated in that sector. There will be losses, in the, particularly in the office and in some of the mall sectors. So the supervisors are in their their and they're working with the company to help it to help it preserve capital and and do the right things to get through what may be a difficult time for some banks that have a, that have a high concentration. The Fed is also weighing more stringent regulation and supervision of banks in response to those failures. Uh, that got some pushback, though, today, especially from Republicans on the committee who worry that it could depress bank lending and maybe stifle economic growth. Meanwhile, Scott, I understand Powell could soon have a new colleague on the Fed board. What can you tell us about her? Her name is Adriana Kugler. Uh, President Biden tapped her to fill a vacancy on the Fed's Board of Governors, and she appeared this morning before a Senate confirmation hearing. Uh, Kugler is an economist who previously served in the Labor Department. Right now she's at the World Bank. And her nomination is getting some extra attention because she would be the first Latino or Latina to serve on the Fed Board. Uh, She's a first-generation American and spent part of her childhood in Colombia. I am fortunate to have lived the American dream after having seen poverty and adversity. I have had educational and economic opportunities that my parents and grandparents would have never had. And I have benefited from social mobility that is only possible in our dynamic U.S. economy. And Kugler's nomination was cheered today by New Jersey Senator Robert Menendez, who's complained for years about the lack of Latino representation on the board. Okay, now to The Rock and Powell's <laughs> apparent fondness for it. We don't usually get a concert review when the Fed chair testifies. We did today. What happened? Yeah, Econ Twitter lit up earlier this month when Jake Sherman of Punchbowl News circulated a picture of Jerome Powell at a Dead & Company concert outside Washington. Uh, that prompted a headline in Barron's to ask, is the Fed head a deadhead? <laughs> so Congressman Wiley Nickel of North Carolina decided to find out. How was the show? Did you like it? Oh, it was terrific. What can I say? So <laughs> it was great. I've, I've been a Grateful Dead fan for 50 years. And by the way, Mary Louise, according to the latest inflation yardstick, the price of concert tickets fell by three-tenths of a percent last month, but they're still up year over year. So it could be a long, strange trip back to musical price stability. <laughs> well said. Thank you, Scott. You're welcome. NPR's Scott Horsley.
Samuel L. Jackson's Nick Fury character takes center stage in Disney Plus's latest series from the Marvel Universe. It's called Secret Invasion. NPR TV critic Eric Dagan says it just might be good enough to defeat the biggest villain in movies and TV today. That's superhero fatigue. When movie and TV audiences seem increasingly skeptical of big-budget projects with folks in capes and cows who can move faster than a speeding bullet, what's an enterprising superhero-based media platform to do? Well, if you're Disney Plus and Marvel, you build an exciting thriller around the baddest dude to not wear a cape in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That's Sam Jackson's super spy Nick Fury who faces his deeply disappointed protege, Maria Hill, played by Kobe Smulders, while learning about a terrible threat facing the Earth. You're not ready for this, Fury. There's a very real threat out there. You always told me there is no shame in walking away when the steps are uncertain. So check your footing, otherwise someone's gonna get hurt. That's some pretty spooky foreshadowing. Marvel fans know Fury's had a tough time over the years. The powerful clandestine spy agency he once led, called S.H.I.E.L.D., was revealed to be secretly riddled with neo-Nazi bad guys in the film Captain America Winter Soldier. See, it's stuff like this that gives me trust issues. And then he got blipped out of existence for five years by another bad guy, Thanos, at the end of Avengers Infinity War. Oh no. And now Fury faces a new challenge, as laid out by two former S.H.I.E.L.D. agents talking in a dark warehouse lair. What if the ones closest to us, the ones we've trusted our whole lives, were someone else entirely? Agent Prescott, respectfully? Uh, what exactly are you talking about? Scrolls. The Skrulls are an alien race of shapeshifters that fans, and Fury, met in the 1990s set film Captain Marvel. As refugees from an interstellar war, they've grown tired of waiting for Fury to make good on promises to find them a new home. Now, in Secret Invasion, they want to take the Earth for themselves, pretending to be key human leaders guiding humanity to annihilate itself. And the biggest question, asked by nearly every major character who meets him in the first two episodes, is whether Fury's too burned out or bummed out to actually save the day. Here's Olivia Coleman's character Sonia Fallsworth, a British spy with the vocal tones of a school headmistress and the ruthlessness of, well, Fury himself. Very few of us know about the wars fought in the shadows that have raged on this planet. You're in no shape for this fight that lies before us, old friend. Secret Invasion leans into an espionage thriller vibe, crafting a suspenseful drama focused on Fury's spy skills, which also helps explain why he's not calling in anyone with a cape. It also explains why Secret Invasion works so well, because by centering on an aging Nick Fury, struggling to handle a crisis created by his own broken promises, we get a story focused much more on a flawed hero we can relate to, rather than some kind of super person tossing around computer-generated cars or something. And to have an actor powerful as Sam Jackson playing that hero, well, that's one of the best antidotes to superhero fatigue I've seen yet. I'm Eric Daggins. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. 
Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. 66 degrees in Boston at 529. Ahead on all things considered, Secretary of State Antony Blinken has raised concerns about China's military and intelligence activities in Cuba, where it allegedly has spy bases and possibly a military training base. That's ahead here on 90.9 WBUR. In the forecast, it'll be partly cloudy tonight with some patchy fog overnight. The lows around 56 degrees, mostly cloudy tomorrow, low 61 degrees. Should be mostly cloudy again on Friday with a chance of showers and thunderstorms. The highs around 78 degrees. For the weekend, same goes for Saturday and Sunday, mostly cloudy. Chance of some showers and thunderstorms. The high both days will be around 83 degrees. Again, it's 66 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BG Catering Concepts, offering a personalized approach to catering your corporate and social occasions. More at bgcateringconcepts.com. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR News, reminding you that your public radio station is a service, and the people who use that service are the largest single source of support for that service. Your old car can play a role. It can help pay for the producers, editors, and audio engineers and others who create Morning Edition every day. Your old car can do that. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Three days after a submersible vessel disappeared on its way to the Titanic wreckage site, the U.S. Coast Guard is bringing in more ships. They're also hoping underwater noises they've detected for two days now might help narrow their search for the vessel and the five people on board. Even those who have expressed optimism, though, warn that many obstacles remain. Here's Coast Guard Captain Jamie Frederick. With respect to the noises specifically, we don't know what they are. Uh, to be frank with you, um, we, the, the P3 detected noises. That's why they're up there. That's why they're doing what they're doing. That's why they put sonar buoys in the water. Um, the good news is, what I can tell you is we're searching in the area where the noises were detected, and we'll continue to do so. He says search crews need to pinpoint the vessel's location, reach it, and bring it to the surface. That vessel could run out of oxygen, though, as soon as tomorrow morning. In Paris, a massive explosion and fire in the city's historic Latin Quarter has left at least 29 people injured, some critically. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley has more on the situation from Paris. The explosion ripped through Paris's fifth arrondissement, shattering a hot summer day's calm. Firefighters and the military are on the scene, and witnesses describe smelling a strong gas odor. TV footage is showing flames and thick billowing smoke. Several witnesses told French television the explosion occurred at a design school called the Paris American Academy. The city of Paris has activated its crisis team. At this point, authorities have not said what could have caused such an explosion. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. Stocks finished lower across the board on Wall Street after the Fed chair hinted to Congress today that more interest rate hikes are likely to rein in inflation. Tech and tech-related shares fell on the news. The tech-heavy Nasdaq dropped 165 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The state attorney general is issuing a warning before a new law goes into effect, allowing some undocumented residents to get driver's licenses here in Massachusetts. Andrea Campbell is warning people about bogus websites and scams that promise to book appointments with the registry, collect fees, and issue licenses. Campbell says you should only use the Registry of Motor Vehicles website or visit an in-person registry location. 
new driver's license law goes into effect on July 1st. The adult woman who posed as a student at Boston Public Schools once worked for the State Department of Children and Families. Police are investigating how the woman fraudulently enrolled in three different high schools in the city this year. Governor Mara Healy says it's too early to determine whether new school enrollment regulations might be necessary. Well, we're learning more about it. It's obviously a really disturbing situation. Um, she was no longer a DCF employee as of February of this year, um, but a disturbing situation, and we'll continue to learn more from authorities as they investigate. In a letter to families, Boston public school officials say no students or staff appear to have been harmed by the woman during her time in the schools. Taunton police are investigating anti-Semitic vandalism at a local synagogue. Police found hateful graffiti spray paint on the property of Congregation Agudath Ekam of Greater Taunton on Friday. A separate incident of hateful vandalism was reported the same day at a private residence in the city. Police say the handwriting of the graffiti appears similar. Both investigations are ongoing. Boston Children's Hospital is no longer ranked the nation's number one pediatric hospital. It had spent the past nine years in the number one spot, according to U.S. News & World Report. But new rankings released today give that honor to Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Boston Children's still ranks pretty high, though, coming in at number two on this year's list. It's 535. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by JBS Home Inspections. With condo common area inspections, as well as home inspections for buyers and sellers throughout greater Boston. JBSinspections.com. In the forecast, partly cloudy tonight, some patchy fog overnight. The lows will be around 56 degrees, mostly cloudy tomorrow. The lows will be around 61. Right now, it's 66 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Focus Features with Asteroid City, the new comedy from director Wes Anderson. A junior stargazers convention is disrupted by an alien encounter. Now playing in New York and Los Angeles, in theaters everywhere this Friday. And from Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people achieve quality sleep. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. In a moment, we'll hear why the federal government is suing Amazon over what the FTC calls deceptive practices in Amazon Prime. But first, rescue teams are still clinging to hope in the search for the five people lost at sea on Sunday on their way down to the wreckage of the Titanic. Some sound was detected from underwater, but there's been no sign of their submersible vessel, and those aboard may have less than a day of oxygen on board. NPR's Tovia Smith joins us now. And Tovia, what has the Coast Guard been saying in their latest updates? Well, we're, we're told that the sound that they heard last night was picked up again today. They describe it as a banging sound, and they've shifted resources to where they think that is coming from. Um, that's somewhere within the massive search area that's about 900 miles east of Boston. But uh, unfortunately, so far, Coast Guard Captain Jamie Frederick says they cannot confirm whether those sounds are coming from the lost sub. It's inconclusive. We don't know what they are. Uh, to be frank with you. What I can tell you is we're searching in the area where the noises were detected, and we'll continue to do so. 
Frederick was firm that the goal is still a rescue, and uh, to that end, more equipment is still moving into the area, including a much-anticipated deep-water remote-operated vehicle. But it is a long trip, and some of that equipment won't arrive on site until tomorrow morning. Okay, and we know that the CEO of the company that runs these excursions and designed the submersible is among those on board. Is that raising hopes in any way? Well, a bit, because the the CEO of Ocean Gate Inc., that's Stockton Rush, is also the pilot of the sub, and as you say, he designed it, so he knows that vessel inside and out, and that does give hope to some folks, like uh, someone I talked to, Per Wimmer, he's an explorer of sea and space, who got to know Rush when he was considering a dive with Ocean Gate. I mean, you couldn't get a better pilot or somebody who knew more about what to do and what not to do and the limits of what's possible, etc. So if one was stuck down there, uh, he would be the, the pilot you would want to have. On the other hand, I'll say there is a decent amount of concern expressed about the design and safety of this sub. A number of industry uh, leaders have warned uh, beginning years ago that the Ocean Gate's, quote, experimental approach could lead to catastrophe, and they've questioned its adherence to industry guidelines and protocols. Uh, The CEO, Rush, has been quoted suggesting that regulation stifles innovation, but David Gallo, who's an expert on Titanic research and recovery is one of those who is of a different mindset on that. I would hope that out of this comes a whole cadre of policies of, you know, for me personally, I would want the government looking over my shoulder at all times. But I think some of these people, uh, they're going to have a different attitude. Gallo's one of many uh, also questioning the apparent hours-long gap between when the sub went missing and when the Coast Guard got a call for help. OceanGate declined to comment on that or anything else today. They're just pointing to earlier statements that they are doing everything they can to bring the crew back safely. I mean, I can't imagine what the families of those people on board are going through right now as they wait for news. It must be horrible. What have we heard from them? Uh, Mostly they're asking for privacy and prayers right now. Um, Gallo, who we just heard from, is among those uh, praying and worrying. He's a very close friend of P.H. Nargile, uh, who is on the vessel working as both a guide and a researcher. Honestly, on the deck of a ship in a storm or in that Parisian cafe, you wouldn't want to be with anyone else. He's that kind of a guy. I introduced him as Papa. (laughs) <laughs> Everyone loved him. It's not just me. There's a whole army of people that positively love PH and Arzale. NPR's Tovia Smith, thank you so much. Thank you. To another story now. Amazon is facing a federal lawsuit over Prime memberships. The Federal Trade Commission is accusing the tech giant of tricking people into buying Prime subscriptions and making them purposefully hard to cancel. I want to note Amazon is among NPR's financial supporters, but we cover them like any other company. I will also note NPR's Alina Siliuk is here to tell us more about today's lawsuit. Hey, Alina. Hello, hello. Okay, so what exactly are regulators accusing Amazon of doing? So they say Amazon for years used, quote, manipulative, coercive, or deceptive tactics designing its platform to get people to sign up for Prime, even if they maybe didn't fully want to. And then these subscriptions would automatically renew, costing people $15 a month or $139 a year. And, you know, Prime, it's kind of the heart of Amazon's retail business. Prime members shop more, they spend more. 
anymore. As of two years ago, Amazon had 200 million Prime subscribers globally. And this lawsuit posits some of them maybe were gained in sneaky ways. Hmm. Sneaky ways like what? So regulators call it dark patterns, which is a dramatic industry term. Um, one example is making it hard to compare your options. So, for example, the FTC says Amazon's website would bombard shoppers with ways to sign up for Prime, but options to shop without Prime would be hard to spot. Or regulators say there would be a button that you have to click to complete a purchase, but it would obscure the fact that clicking it also signs you up for Prime. And I want to mention the other main bit of the FTC's lawsuit. It's about canceling Prime. The mm -hmm. agency says Amazon built the cancellation pr process with a focus on discouraging people from leaving. It's a lot of pages. It's a lot of clicks. Internally, the process was apparently called the Iliad flow. Iliad flow, like Greek epic Trojan War kind of Iliad flow? Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay. Hundreds of pages long, which to the FTC, that makes it clear maybe Amazon wanted cancellations to be quite laborious. The FTC says Amazon began changing some of these things as the federal investigation got underway, but violations continue. What is Amazon saying to all of this? You know, it appears the um, the lawsuit caught Amazon by surprise. Uh, in its press statements, uh, the company said it was in talks with FTC staff and expected to meet with the commissioners before the lawsuit landed. And overall, Amazon called FTC's claims, quote, false on the facts and the law. So step back and just answer for me, how big a deal is this case likely to, to prove to be for Amazon? Yeah, so this is the first FTC lawsuit uh, against Amazon under the agency's firebrand chair, Lena Khan. She arrived as a young legal star in competition in Monopoly, and she's most famous for her law school paper that was called Amazon's Antitrust Paradox. Because of that, Amazon actually even tried to have Khan recuse herself from FTC cases about the company. Now mm -hmm. she's bringing this lawsuit. And also, companies often push to settle regulatory cases. Recently, Amazon itself agreed to pay $30 million to settle alleged privacy violations without admitting wrongdoing. But this case is before a federal court in Seattle now might become the flashpoint of the FTC scrutiny of Amazon. Thanks, Alina. Thank you. And Pierre's Alina Seljuk. Support for All Tech Considered comes from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. When Secretary of State Antony Blinken visited China this week, he raised concerns about China's military and intelligence activities in Cuba. The Wall Street Journal has run a series of articles about alleged spy bases and a possible military training base on the communist island just 90 miles from Florida. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports on the role of Cuba in Chinese-U.S. relations. Secretary Blinken says right from the start, this administration has been tracking China's growing influence in the Western Hemisphere, especially in Cuba. This is something we're going to be monitoring very, very closely, and we've been very clear about that. And we will protect our homeland. We will protect our interests. 
China has brushed off the reports, and some experts say the fears may be overblown. Peter Kornbluh tracks Cuba for the National Security Archive, a research center in Washington. He says for decades after the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Soviet Union maintained a listening base in Cuba, so it's no surprise that China has one too. Countries spy on each other. The United States has all sorts of listening and, and espionage bases uh, targeting China. And uh, that has not necessarily made it a greater threat to China, just like uh, the expansion of Chinese intelligence uh, in Cuba, I don't think makes China a greater threat to the United States. The U.S. is also worried that China is trying to expand its military presence on the island amid reports that it's in talks with Cuba on building a training center. That might be China's attempt to respond to U.S. military activities in Asia, says Margaret Myers, the director of the Asia and Latin America program at the Inter-American Dialogue, a Washington think tank. Whether this facility develops in the way that it's been described is is unclear, but certainly it would be indicative of a Chinese interest in growing its presence in this respect very close to the United States, just as the U.S. has been doing to some degree in in the Pacific. Myers can't imagine China changing course just because Blinken asked them to. And if the U.S. really wants to counter Chinese influence in this hemisphere, she says it should focus more on trade and investment. China has become a top trade partner for many countries in the region. Certainly, we need to keep an eye on things that are happening in the intelligence gathering space uh, or the security space. But um, the question is largely an economic one. And, you know, economic engagement is critical, certainly for the region, but has political implications and uh, implications as concerns U.S. national security and U.S. involvement in and influence in the region. In Cuba's case, the U.S. has maintained an embargo on the communist island for decades. The Obama administration negotiated an opening, though that was reversed by President Trump, and this current administration has kept a tough line. Peter Kornbluh says U.S. policy is pushing Cuba closer to China. And a lot of critics of that policy of severe sanctions against Cuba have pointed out that the Russians and the Chinese would come in and fill the void uh, that the United States has left in its relations with Cuba. Both he and Myers doubt China will have a presence in Cuba that comes even close to what the Soviet Union had on the island. Myers points out that China's foreign ministry calls Cuba a good comrade, and there are close political ties, but Chinese economic investment is limited. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. It's all things considered from NPR News. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 66 degrees in Boston at 548. Coming up in a few minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, there were 3,300 entries into NPR's annual student podcast challenge, but just one winner. We'll introduce you to Georgiana McKenney and her winning entry that tells the story of the toll that the Jackson, Mississippi water crisis has had on its students. That's ahead here on 90.9 WBUR. R&B and neo-soul singer-songwriter Miranda Ray headlines our next Sound On Music Festival this Friday, June 23rd at City Space. Details and tickets can be found at wbur.org 
slash events. In sports, the Red Sox will be looking for their seventh win in a row tonight when they take on the Twins again in Minnesota. Garrett Whitlock gets the start for the Sox. Sonny Gray will be on the mound for the Twins. In the forecast, partly cloudy tonight with some patchy fog overnight. The lows will be around 56 degrees. Should be mostly cloudy tomorrow. The highs around 61. Mostly cloudy again on Friday with a chance of showers and thunderstorms. The highs will be around 78 degrees. Again right now at 66 degrees in Boston, this is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. Soul singer Paul Janeway dreamed of becoming a preacher. Instead, he's the front man of St. Paul and the Broken Bones. Anytime, you know, you make music in general or any sort of art form, sometimes you kind of, it's what moves you. The band's new album includes songs for his daughter, Angels in Science Fiction, on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. It's time now to announce the big high school winner of NPR's annual Student Podcast Challenge. This year, we had more than 3,300 entries from middle and high schoolers in 48 states, as well as Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico. So without further ado, the top high school podcast comes from Mississippi. Our winner is 17 years old. Her name is Georgiana McKinney, and she grew up south of the state capital, Jackson. Her winning entry tells the story of the toll the city's water crisis has taken on its students. Hi, I'm Georgiana McKinney, and this is The Real Mississippi, a student podcast written, recorded, and produced by students at the Mississippi School for Mathematics and Science. And that is where I first meet Georgiana McKinney, just inside the front doors of the Mississippi School for Mathematics and Science, a prestigious public boarding school for gifted high schoolers from all over the state. I'm Corey. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. The school is two and a half hours northeast of Jackson in Columbus, Mississippi. Also here to celebrate Georgiana's big win is her teacher, Thomas Easterling who assigned this podcast as part of his composition class. So proud of you. (laughs) That's awesome. Georgiana is soft-spoken with glasses and her hair in braids. She tells us she loves studying other languages and walks us down the hall past a classroom with posters in Russian. This year I took Russian and I took Portuguese um, in the spring. When we get to Easterling's class, Georgiana heads to her usual desk in the back corner and explains how she went about making her podcast. I kind of had a vision in my head. I spent a lot of time in my head, actually, so it wasn't that hard. I spend a lot of time in my head. That's how Georgiana talks, disarmingly honest. While most of Thomas Easterling's students worked on their podcasts in pairs, one writing, one producing, Georgiana did both alone. And, you know, I had complete control, so I had to worry about what anyone else thought. But she admits she didn't really know how to make a podcast because... I don't listen to podcasts. They're, like, really boring. Boring or not, she had to make her own podcast for class. The idea was they need to know their hometowns better. 
This is Thomas Easterling. He's had several students earn honorable mentions or become finalists in previous years of NPR's Student Podcast Challenge. And since I have students all over Mississippi, they did research on the parts of their hometown that gave them a sense of place. Georgiana grew up outside of Jackson and got her podcast idea after she mentioned the water crisis while texting with a friend from out of state. She lives in Georgia, and I texted her, and she was like, like, what is that? Or like, she didn't know about it. So I was like, really shocked. So Georgiana decided to use her podcast to sound an alarm on behalf of Jackson. Literally, this is how it starts. Mariah starts her day by going to the bathroom to check if her water pressure is working before getting ready for school. That's meant to be an alarm clock, waking up her main character, Georgiana's cousin, Mariah, who attended Jackson Public Schools back in January during a really tough stretch. As she turns the handle, no water comes from the faucet. That's Georgiana narrating. And so she looks under her sink for a water bottle to find out that there are none allowed. She sighs, picks up her phone, and dials the high school. Mariah tells the school, I can't come to class today. Georgiana's podcast is about a few tough weeks in January when low pressure across the city's troubled water system hit families and schools hard. For a few days, the school shifted online. Children are missing instructional time in the classroom, and it is not talked about enough in the media. On January Our 6, judges loved her podcast because she took on a major story in her community. She reported it out with interviews and made excellent use of sound. Flush the toilet like three or four times. Make sure I got it right. Something so simple as using the bathroom has become difficult because of how low the wire pressure is. They end up shutting down some of the bathrooms. That's probably how we got virtual in the first place. Cause That's Mariah, Georgiana's cousin. She contributed to the winning podcast, and we sat down with her in downtown Jackson for our own interview alongside Georgiana. Lord knows, and I was drinking water that whole day. Mariah told us about one day in January when schools were still open, but with water pressure low, the bathrooms were being closed because the toilets couldn't flush. Class was not my main focus no more. I couldn't do anything else besides holding. Georgiana also interviewed an administrator with Jackson Public Schools who agreed to discuss the crisis as long as Georgiana promised not to use her name. We would close down um, most of the restrooms and limit the number of restrooms that we use to, uh, to about two for each building. Because water pressure could vary from school to school, the district sometimes sent students from one school to another. Teachers weren't able to be in the classrooms. They're usually assigned to students wasn't reporting to the area where they're assigned to. So it just made for a very unpredictable um, circumstance. Mariah told us her school was one of those that ended up hosting a lot more students. Like once the students got there, how did that work? Crowded. And sometimes the classroom would be packed in just imagine the lunchroom because our lunchroom is really not that big. Speaking of the lunchroom, the school administrator told Georgiana the water problems even affected what students were given to eat. Sometimes they have enough water to cook a full hot meal. But often there wasn't enough water pressure. And so on those days, the cafeteria staff might prepare um, sack lunches. Mariah, Georgiana's cousin, was not a fan of those sack lunches. Imagine getting turkey and ham and cheese sandwiches for, for seven days straight. I feel like we in prison. 
Georgiana told us one of the hardest things about doing this podcast was having to listen to her own voice. In fact, when it came time to play it for the class, she asked her teacher, Thomas Easterling, Can I please leave the classroom when you played it? Because I couldn't stand it. Jackson Public Schools tells NPR, after that rough patch in January, schools were largely able to operate normally for the rest of the school year, with the exception of a few boil water notices. As for Georgiana, in winning NPR's student podcast challenge, she's getting exactly what she wanted, a platform to sound the alarm on behalf of the kids of Jackson. Corey Turner. Georgiana McKinney. NPR, NPR News, Columbus, Mississippi. Yeah, so good. Congrats to Georgiana. And Juana, I gotta say, hard relate mm-hmm. to what she said toward the end there about how hard it can be to listen to your own voice. I feel like I was just transported back to the first time I did an interview on NPR before I worked here. It was with Steve Enskeep, and I heard it, and I immediately wanted to turn the volume down. I almost don't feel that way now. 10 years later. It gets easier when you walk around and they're playing. It's usually your voice coming out of the speakers in everybody's office and even the bathrooms here at NPR. But here we go. Big congrats to Georgiana McKinney and um, all the rest of the great students out there who entered our podcast challenge. Indeed. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. From BritBox, with the latest season of Father Brown, season 10, This and more mysteries following unofficial detectives, including Miss Marple and Jonathan Creek, streaming at BritBox.com slash NPR. And from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI, to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. Thanks for joining us at 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. Ahead, Democrats are trying to figure out ways to legislate a federal right to reproductive freedoms. That's ahead here on 90.9 WBUR. Partly cloudy tonight, some patchy fog overnight. The lows around 56 degrees. Should be mostly cloudy tomorrow. The highs will be around 61. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College. Offering part-time graduate programs in health communication, 100% online. Learn storytelling and media strategies vital to health marketing and communication. Learn more at bu.edu slash MEP. I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I have heard story after story. I've seen state law after state law passed. And yeah, we are in a state of chaos. It's been one year since the Supreme Court struck down Roe versus Wade, and Democrats say the impact has been dramatic. It's Wednesday, June 21st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. 
Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, a conversation with Washington Senator Patty Murray about efforts to legislate a federal right to reproductive freedoms. Also ahead, the USDA gave a final green light to the sale of no-kill meat grown from animal cells in a production facility. Upside Foods and Good Meats can start selling chicken made without killing the bird. And a federal judge has permanently blocked the country's first law banning gender-affirming care for minors, signaling a victory for LGBTQ advocates. It's 6.01, now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The company that operates a missing submersible in the North Atlantic with five people on board was repeatedly warned there could be catastrophic problems due to the way the vessel was developed. The vessel Titan was headed down to view wreckage of the Titanic when contact was lost Sunday. Will Cohen chairs the Marine Technology Society submarine group and says red flags were raised about owner Ocean Gate Expeditions. Most of the companies in this industry that are building uh, submersibles and deep submersibles follow a fairly well-established framework of certification and verification and oversight through classification societies. And that was at the root of uh, Ocean Gate's project is that they were going to go uh, solo going without that type of uh, official oversight, and that brought a lot of concerns. Searchers have detected some underwater noises, but say it's not clear they are coming from the missing submersible. China's blasting President Biden for, quote, extremely absurd and irresponsible remarks after the president called his Chinese counterpart a dictator who is facing real economic problems. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports the State Department is trying to downplay the dispute. Biden's remarks came just after he sent his secretary of state to China to open up better communications. State Department spokesman Vedant Patel says no one should be surprised that there are still disagreements. We won't hesitate to uh, call out areas where we disagree or to be blunt and forthright about some of these differences. And of course, one of those areas that the president and the secretary have been clear about is the differences between democracies and autocracies and what they have. Biden told donors that Xi Jinping didn't know about the Chinese spy balloon before it was shot down in February, and he called that a great embarrassment for dictators. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell is warning interest rates are likely to go higher this year as the central bank tries to curb inflation. NPR's Scott Horsley reports on Powell's testimony before a House committee. Inflation has come down from a four-decade high last summer, but prices are still climbing about twice as fast as the central bank would like. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell told a House committee he and his colleagues are determined to get inflation back down to their target of 2 percent. Powell acknowledged that process still has a long way to go. Inflation has consistently surprised us and essentially all other forecasters by being more persistent than, than expected. While Fed policymakers opted to hold interest rates steady when they met last week, Powell says most members of the rate-setting committee think additional rate hikes will be necessary this year in order to get prices under control. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Stocks lost ground on Wall Street following Powell's testimony today. The Dow dropped 102 points to 33,951. The Nasdaq fell 165 points. The S&P was down 23 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The state is preparing for more than 200,000 newly eligible residents to apply for driver's licenses next month. That's when a new law goes into effect, allowing undocumented residents to apply for Massachusetts driver's licenses. Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll, herself the daughter of an immigrant, was at an event marking the change earlier today. 
I want to celebrate this milestone of people coming together across our Commonwealth to take care of their neighbors, to help build stronger and smarter communities in a way that allows just some of the basic dignities that people expect to be able to go shopping, go to a doctor's appointment, go to school. The state has upped its RMV service center staff by 45% in anticipation of the influx of new applicants. It's also rolling out changes to its website that allow people to request interpreters for RMV appointments. Governor Mara Healey is filing an interim budget to keep the state running beyond the end of the month. The nearly $7 billion package authorizes spending on necessary services for the month of July. The move comes as the Legislative Committee continues to work out differences between the House and Senate versions of the fiscal 2024 budget. The committee has been trying to reach that compromise since early this month. The Massachusetts Air National Guardsman accused of leaking classified federal documents online is pleading not guilty to the charges he's facing. 21-year-old Jack Teixeira of North Dighton appeared in a Worcester federal court for an arraignment this afternoon. His lawyers asked to reconsider his bail determination, which was denied. His next court date is August 9th. He could face up to 60 years in prison if he's found guilty. Thousands of Cape Cod residents could be required to replace or upgrade their septic systems under new state regulations released today. That's unless local water districts come up with other plans to reduce water pollution. WBUR's Barbara Moran has more. Decades of nitrogen pollution from septic systems has led to algae overgrowth and murky water in many Cape Cod bays and estuaries. Andrew Gottlieb is with the Association to Preserve Cape Cod. He says the new regulations should help the Cape move away from traditional septic systems to large-scale solutions. These regulations are long overdue, much needed, and transformational for Cape Cod. In a statement, Governor Healy said her administration would, quote, ensure there is financial support as the new regulations are implemented. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. The State Department of Correction has ended housing operations at the nearly 70-year-old MCI Cedar Junction in Walpole. It has also relocated the prison's reception and diagnostic center and dissolved its disciplinary unit. The agency says the state has its lowest prison population in 35 years and was able to finish the wind-down of the facility ahead of schedule. Many of those once held at Cedar Junction have been moved to the more modern Sousa Baranowski Correctional Center in Shirley. Sports, the Red Sox will be looking for their seventh win in a row tonight when they take on the Twins out in Minnesota. In the forecast, partly cloudy tonight, some patchy fog overnight. The lows will be around 56. Mostly cloudy tomorrow, low 61. Mostly cloudy again Friday. Chances some showers or thunderstorms, the high 78. Right now, 66 degrees in Boston. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly on a rainy day on Capitol Hill. I'm standing here looking east because it's just a couple of hundred yards east of here that you will find the Supreme Court, which one year ago issued the opinion striking down Roe versus Wade. Well, since then, Democrats here in Congress have been trying to figure out ways to legislate a federal right to reproductive freedoms, they have not succeeded. Now, we have come today 
to meet the woman still leading that charge. She is Senator Patty Murray of Washington. She's a 30-year veteran of the Senate. She spent a lot of those years focused on reproductive rights. Nice to see you, Senator. Thanks for having us. Inside her Senate office, with the anniversary looming of the decision overturning a federal right to an abortion, we sat down with Patty Murray to talk through where she sees the fight going next. Senator Murray, welcome to All Things Considered. I'm so delighted to be on with you today. Thank you. As we were just getting set up, you you looked at me and said, I can't believe it's been a year. Um, what do you think about when you think about the Dobbs decision a year ago? Uh, you know, it, it's incredible that it's been a year, but it feels like a really long year. I, I remember when the Dobbs decision came down, I was on a plane flying home to Seattle, got off, and I was just, I just felt so stunned um, and sad. And I kept thinking, this is going to create chaos. Couldn't quite define that yet, but could say that it was going to happen. And here we are a year later, and I have heard story after story. I've seen state law after state law passed. And yeah, we are in a state of chaos for women's health. Well, and I gather you were hoping for chaos on a certain level. I saw an interview you gave to The Post last year where you said, I hope this moment of the Supreme Court striking down Roe v. Wade will be a galvanizing moment, that there will be a national furor. Has there been? Absolutely, without a doubt. I mean, we saw it in the election. Every state that has had... But we saw in the election Republicans took the House. Right, but every state that had abortion on the ballot, abortion rights for women, it passed. Women came out to vote to make sure that they could protect their rights. Have we seen dozens of states pass really horrific laws that have inhibited women? Yes. Yeah. But I guess, I mean, just to push you on this, the Supreme Court struck down Roe. Republicans won the House. As you just nodded to, state after state has passed laws restricting abortions, mostly not the other way. Um, there's still all kinds of debate over the uh, abortion pill and mifepristone and where that will go, but increasing efforts to walk back access to that. And I'm sitting with you on Capitol Hill and there aren't protests outside every day. I get that there can't be protests every Look, day, but I, I when you say you it's caused difference. a furor, I'm not yeah, sure I, I see it. I can tell you the difference pre-Dobbs decision, post-Dobbs. Pre-Dobbs decision, women in this country knew that they didn't have to tell anybody that they were pregnant or that they were ending their pregnancy or that they had a miscarriage or had any complications from it. It was a private decision. They had access to the care they needed. That changed dramatically and continues to change as state legislators take these horrific steps to preclude women from getting the access that they need. And now women are realizing, and men, that they can't be quiet about this. They actually need to tell people this is happening to them. And the number of people who have a friend, a family member, someone they work with, uh, someone they know in college that has been impacted by this, it is growing and the outrage is growing. So let's talk about what you would like to see Congress do. Um, last May, right after the draft opinion leaked, the Senate held a vote attempting to enshrine abortion rights. It failed. I guess I'm wondering, we're not able to get a vote through when Democrats controlled the Senate and the House and the White House. Today. So what gives you hope? Today. And I think what gives me hope is that this has now become an issue that people really understand. And they understand that they have to stand up and fight for it, that we need to change the laws, 
We need to protect women. Do you hear any of that from your colleagues across the aisle, though, like Republicans in the House? Well, what I have, well, I'm not going to speak for the House, <laughs> a radical few, but what I can tell you is a number of Republicans have gone from a year ago saying, we're going to pass a national ban to just being quiet about it in, in most cases. Now, there are absolutely members of the Republican Party who are standing up and continuing to try and make this an issue, but I will tell you, as we see more and more of the fallout, the impact to women in particular, treating women as the, if they are second-class citizens uh, in this country. You cannot determine your own health care. You can't even find your own health care. You can't even travel to another state to get your health care. The outrage that is being felt by women and their friends and their families is growing. Huh. Listening to you, you don't sound tired. I think a lot of people might sound tired after... 30 years, it's been 30 years since you entered the Senate, and women arguably have had seen their rights narrow, not expand yeah. in that time. Oh, I, this is a battle of a lifetime. I was in college when Roe was decided. I had friends, one who was what we today would call, be called date raped, um, and she had no health care access, ended up having uh, an abortion by a doctor on the street and severely injured because he didn't have the right kind of care. I do not want to go back to those days. I don't want to go back to the days where women are put into institutions because they got pregnant. This is life. This is what happens. And uh, in this country, we have protected that ability for the last 30 years, and I will keep fighting every day till we get that back. I interviewed Gloria Steinem last spring, the activist and journalist, and she compared the fight for reproductive rights to a tree. Her argument was if trees grew from the top down, it would be fine to wait on Congress to do something here. But <laughs> you're laughing. Trees grow from the bottom up, from the ground up, and that's the way this is going to have to work. It has to be about a fight by individuals in our communities. Absolutely. She is so right about that. I can be in the back room and fight, but the laws will be overturned, the courts will turn back to a place where we have our protections, Roe will be established in individual states across the country where people elect legislators on both sides of the aisle who are willing to say women's rights need to be protected, women should make their own health care decisions, legislators should not. Senator Patty Murray, Democrat of Washington, thank you. Thank you. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has, for the first time in history, given a green light to two U.S. companies to sell meat that is grown directly from animal cells without slaughtering the animal. Until recently, it was called lab-grown meat since scientists were developing it in labs. Now, though, the labs have been replaced by production facilities that can grow tens of thousands of pounds of meat a year. NPR's Allison Aubrey has visited these companies and tasted the meat and joins us now. Hey, Allison. Hi there. So, Allison, what exactly did the USDA approve today? Well, for thousands of years, eating meat has meant slaughtering animals. But the scientists behind the two companies that received USDA clearance today say that's no longer necessary. Instead, they produce meat by extracting cells from an animal's body. Then they feed the cells and literally grow meat in big stainless steel tanks. Their production facilities look like breweries almost, but instead of beer, they're brewing meat, so to speak. I do not know how I feel about that, but okay, <laughs> let's go on here. We have been hearing about 
about so-called fake meat for a long time now. I mean, a lot of us have eaten our fair share of veggie burgers or impossible burgers over the years, but what makes this different? This is nothing like the Impossible Burger or a veggie burger, which are made from vegetable proteins, so soy, potato protein, and a bunch of other ingredients that are mixed together to taste like meat. What's approved for sale today actually is meat. Uh, when I visited Upside Foods, which is headquartered in Berkeley, they prepared their chicken, which is grown directly from chicken cells. It's more than 99% chicken cells. It was pan seared in a kind of lovely buttery wine sauce. I mean, Allison, you're kind of bearing the lead here. How did it taste? <laughs> How was it? You know, I think almost anything cooked in butter and wine probably tastes good, right? Oh, yeah. What did impress me is the texture. They've basically replicated the texture of chicken breast. Uh, I told the CEO of Upside Foods, Uma Valetti, hey, it tastes just like chicken. It is chicken. It's just chicken grown directly from animal cells in a different way, in a very clean, controlled environment. Now, Dr. Valetti is a cardiologist who became a vegetarian, but he loves the taste of meat, and he thinks this is a better way to produce meat, one that could be better for the environment, and as the son of a veterinarian, he likes the idea of sparing animals' lives. Okay, so where can people buy it or get a taste of it? Right now, don't expect to see it in grocery stores. To start out, both companies have kind of teamed up with famous chefs. Upside Foods is working with chef Dominique Crenn, a Michelin-starred chef in San Francisco. And Good Meat, the other company that got clearance today, has partnered with megastar Jose Andres, who will serve cultivated chicken at one of his restaurants. I mean, so why should people want this? What is wrong with the way that meat's produced today? It depends on who you ask. The traditional meat industry says the status quo is efficient, but meat production has a big environmental footprint. I talked to Bruce Friedrich, who heads the nonprofit Good Food Institute. He tracks investments in protein alternatives and says there are more than 150 companies working to bring cultivated meat and seafood to market. Some are working on beef. He says global demand for meat is expected to double by 2050. Cultivated meat gives consumers everything that they like about meat, but it requires a fraction of the land, requires significantly less water. Now, it remains to be seen whether cultivated meat production can lower greenhouse gas emissions from producing meat. But what is clear is that now that cultivated meat is approved for sale, it is no longer science fiction. People will get a chance to taste it. All right. That is NPR's Allison Aubrey. Thank you so much. Thank you. Great to be here. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown. 65 degrees in Boston at 619. Ahead on All Things Considered, monarch butterflies with more white spots on their orange and black wings are more successful at completing their migration. Scientists think the spots may affect airflow around the butterfly's wings. That story's ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. 
On Wall Street today, stocks closed lower. The Dow down three-tenths of a percent at 33,952. NASDAQ down almost one and a quarter percent at 13,502. And the S&P 500 down a half a percent at 43.66. In local business news, a Boston-based immunology company has secured FDA approval for a new treatment for a severe autoimmune disease. Arginix's Hytrulo injection will treat adults with generalized myasthenia gravis, or GMG. The chronic disease causes debilitating and potentially life-threatening muscle weakness for about 65,000 Americans. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BG Catering Concepts. Planning weddings, corporate events, and other significant celebrations to feel special. BGCateringConcepts.com. Tap and listen to WBUR anywhere this summer takes you. Listen live and catch up on anything you missed. Download or update the WBUR app now. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. A federal judge in Arkansas has struck down the nation's first ever ban on gender-affirming health care for transgender minors. Yesterday, he ruled the state law unconstitutional, which could affect other states with similar laws on the books. Daniel Breen with member station KUAR in Little Rock is with us. Hey there, Daniel. Hello. Hi. So this case goes back to 2021. That is when lawmakers in Arkansas passed the nation's first ever ban on gender-affirming health care for minors. Just walk me briefly through how it's ended up in federal court. Sure. So the law is called the Save Adolescents from Experimentation or SAFE Act. It was part of a flurry of legislation we saw here in Arkansas and other states really restricting the conduct and speech relating to the LGBTQ community, specifically transgender people. The law here in Arkansas basically threatens physicians with legal penalties for prescribing gender-affirming care to trans kids under 18. And just to be specific about what that means, this is treatments uh, like puberty blockers and hormones to help kids feel more like the gender they identify with when that may be a different gender than the one they were assigned at birth? Yes, exactly. Lawmakers had argued that the law was necessary to protect kids from quote-unquote irreversible procedures like surgery, though I think it's important to note that gender-affirming surgeries really have never been performed on minors here in Arkansas. Okay, so tell me more about how these arguments played out in court. So Arkansas Attorney General Tim Griffin said it's, quote, widely known that there is no scientific evidence that any child will benefit from these procedures and that they risk permanent harm. When the state argued its case last December, it called a number of witnesses to make that argument. But when questioned, a number of them admitted that they hadn't really had any experience providing transgender teens with any type of gender affirming treatments. Judge Moody's ruling said that there is evidence showing that gender-affirming care for trans youth improves their mental health and the well-being of patients. He said testimony from well-credentialed experts and the doctors that the plaintiffs called showed that. And who are the plaintiffs, by the way? So the ACLU sued on behalf of four families of transgender teens and two physicians here, and they got a federal court to put the law on hold temporarily just days before it was set to go into effect. Now, that was in 2021, and the lawsuit against it has been moving through the courts ever since. Uh, 
But last December, there was an eight-day trial, and then yesterday, U.S. District Court Judge James Moody permanently blocked the law, although last night, Arkansas's attorney general said the state will appeal his ruling. Well, and the judge said the law is unconstitutional. What is his reasoning there? So Moody said the law violates the First, the Fifth, and the Fourteenth Amendments. He agreed with the ACLU's arguments that the First Amendment protects doctors' right to refer patients to other providers for gender-affirming care. The judge said the law also violates rights to due process and equal protection by taking away parents' rights to make decisions about their kids' health care and that it discriminates against minors based on their sex since the law wouldn't prohibit minors from accessing gender-affirming care so long as it aligns with their sex assigned at birth. And broaden this out for me briefly. At least 19 other states have similar laws banning gender-affirming care for trans minors. What might this federal court ruling mean for them? Well, it's not exactly clear how the ruling will affect other cases right now, but I think right now it's fair to say that this sets an important precedent for uh, in the case law surrounding issues like this. Most of those other state laws are also being challenged in court. Uh-huh. I think this ruling is especially important because this was the first law of its kind to be passed in the country and a first time a law like this has been permanently put on hold. Daniel Breen, News Director at KUAR in Little Rock. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Monarch butterflies have distinctive orange and black wings. Their wings also have small white spots, and it's the white spots that recently caught the attention of one group of scientists. As NPR's Nell Greenfield-Boyce reports, these researchers believe that the white spots could help monarchs fly during their long annual migrations. Monarch butterflies are world-class flyers. Andy Davis studies them at the University of Georgia, He says their annual migration covers thousands of miles. One of the things that makes it so captivating as a scientist is how something so small and so delicate seeming can make such a tremendous journey. He says each spring, monarchs leave their overwintering grounds in Mexico. Then they head north, laying eggs as they go. Each generation of butterflies moves the species steadily northward. In the spring, it's more of a progression of successive generations. The fall migration is different and more dramatic. The fall migration is that magical one where one single generation attempts to make that long distance, you know, 3,000 mile journey all the way to central Mexico. These monarchs travel for about two months. Flying all the way down there or they die trying. It's a grueling trip. And Davis and some colleagues wondered if it might be affected by the pattern of color on monarch's wings. They've analyzed hundreds of monarch wings from butterflies all up and down its range, and they noticed something about the monarchs that successfully completed the long-distance flight. Those monarchs that reached Mexico tended to have slightly less black on their wings and slightly more white on their wings. To see if white spots might really be somehow related to migration, they looked at closely related butterfly species, ones that don't migrate and ones that were only semi-migratory. And so we figured if the migration has selected for white spots in the monarchs, then we would see larger spots in the monarchs compared to everybody else. And that's exactly what we found. He and his colleagues described their findings in a science journal called PLOS One. 
They believe the pattern of black and white on the edge of a monarch's wing could potentially affect airflow because the dark and light patches would be hotter or cooler in the sun. Other butterfly researchers say it's a wild idea. Marcus Kronforst is an evolutionary biologist with the University of Chicago. He studied wing color for basically his whole career. It's never crossed my mind that it might influence how the butterflies fly, that it would influence their their sort of aerodynamic uh, efficiency. It is, it is a, as far as I can tell, it's a totally new idea. He says most research on wing color has studied how it can be used for camouflage or as a warning to birds that might be looking for a snack. The reason monarchs have those bright color patterns is to warn predators that the butterfly is toxic. He finds the idea of color affecting flight intriguing, but thinks there needs to be more evidence. That's also the view of Mary Salcedo, who studies insect wings at Cornell University. She'd be interested in seeing flight-related experiments done with wings that have different color patterns. I'd love to see aerodynamic tests on their lift and drag coefficients. That's the kind of work that Davis and his colleagues are focused on now. They're planning to use a mechanism that will flap real butterfly wings in a testing chamber that tracks the movement of air. Nell Greenfield-Boyce, NPR News. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBURN, WBUR.org, 65 degrees in Boston at 630. Coming up next, it's Marketplace with all the day's business news. In the forecast, it'll be partly cloudy tonight with some patchy fog overnight. The low's around 56 degrees, mostly cloudy tomorrow, a low of 61. Mostly cloudy again on Friday with a chance of some showers or thunderstorms. The highs will be around 78 degrees. Again, right now it's 65 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo's Hunter Douglas Energy Smart Style event, window fashions designed to increase energy efficiency. Hunter Douglas at Innuendo in Natick and Innuendo.com.